Good evening. Uh, tonight, Ryan Dugan um, is going to be preaching for us. Ryan, we worked together when I was at Christ the King. I know. We're shorter than you, Ryan. Yeah, you just, actually, I'm going to get you one. You're just going to start, and I'm going to get you a better one. So anyway, um, let me pray for Ryan, and then he's, he's going to speak with us tonight. Thank you, Ryan, for being here. He's a good friend of both Kyle's and mine, so it's fun for us. He's a pastor in training, too, so you can pray for him. He's one of the leaders coming up in our presbytery. And so, again, thanks. Yeah. All right, let's pray. Father, I give you thanks for Ryan, for your calling upon his life to serve in your church this way. We do pray for him as he speaks with us this evening and reminds us of your word. Pray your Holy Spirit would take the words um, from him and apply them to our heart, Lord, uh, as your spirit sees fit. Would you work in and through your scriptures that transforms us as we put our faith in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. I'm going to be fine. It's your call. Well, I got my contacts in, so we should be good. Hey, guys. My name is Ryan. As Brad said, I uh, had the pleasure of being with you all, I think, in January. Uh, but a lot's changed since then, uh, since January. Uh, we're in a new place. Uh, know that my wife and I have been praying for you guys uh, during kind of this harder season. I will say July 11th is a great date. It is my birthday that day. Uh, so I'm just going to assume as you celebrate at your church home that you're actually celebrating my birthday also. Um, and feel free to send me any text messages of good wishes and whatever as we go. For those of you I didn't get to meet last time I was here, uh, I do work at Christ the King down in Houston. I'm the young adult director there. I am the husband to Michaela. We've been married, well, we, we will have been married five years in June. I have two little girls, Everett, who's three, um, who's like her father, dramatic, emotional, loves to dance, um, who knows no stranger. Uh, we have a one-year-old named Kendall, who's like her mother. She is not afraid of anything, and a little bit more to herself, but super kind. And then we have Duglet. That's what we call our kids. My last name is Dugan. We call them Duglets. Duglet number three is making her appearance in like three weeks. So uh, again, please pray for the Dugan family as we have three girls now in the home, four in total, and our dog's a girl, so I'm just surrounded. Um, anyhow, I'm really happy to be with you this evening. Um, I've loved this church for a long time. I've been in Houston for a little, seven years and some change, and have just really grown to love and appreciate you all. And I, I, and I do mean it. My wife and I have been praying for you all a lot. And I've been really encouraged, too, to see God's faithfulness to you, both in the way that you've loved each other and the way that you still love your community during this season. Um, I thought I'd start tonight by sharing something kind of strange that happened to me this past week. So I was at a coffee shop in Houston near my home. That's where I regularly go. And I was meeting with some friends who are all doing ministry, one of which is starting ministry. We were talking about the hard things in ministry, the things we get excited about, the things we're afraid of, the things we're hopeful for. And then this young woman walks up to our table and she says, I hear you're talking about spiritual things. Do you mind if I join you? And let me tell you, as a pastor, this is like the best, okay? Like I'm chasing people down all week trying to get coffee or lunch or something just so we can talk about life. So when someone comes to me and says, hey, you want to talk about Jesus? I'm like, sure, this is great. Uh, so we, stop, we talk, and uh, like two, three hours go by. We've talked about everything, philosophy, social justice, critical theory, theology, politics, all the things that you're not supposed to talk about uh, with your new friends. And... What was striking to me about this conversation is really two things. The first is, man, life has gotten complicated. Uh, I've been doing ministry for almost 13 years, and I, have, I did not have that conversation that I had with her 
a PhD student at Rice 10 years ago. Just wasn't the conversation. She was asking questions and challenging me in ways that I didn't have 10 years ago in ministry. It seems like things have gotten more tense, especially the last year and a half as we've all been isolated for a time. It seems like the lines are drawn harsher. Uh, both sides of whatever field of conversation you're in seem to be a little more aggressive, a little less charitable. Things just seem complicated. And the second thing that I thought of was um, really the heart of all of her questioning, which was what are Christians moved by? What are we really as Christians devoted to? What makes us think the way we think and live the way we live and love the way we love? Where does our devotion lie? And tonight in the text we're going to read together, this is really the heart of the story where we're going to go through. It's this question of where, how, what does it look like to be devoted to God? What does devotion to God really look like? So let's, if you have your Bibles with you or perhaps your phone, uh, turn to <clears throat> Mark chapter 14. We're going to read verses 1 through 11 together. Uh, I think if you have ESV, it's on page 850. Don't hold me to that, but let's read. <clears throat> it was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him, it's Jesus, by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he, Jesus, was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at the table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could, and she has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was, the one, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. It's the word of the Lord. Will you pray with me? Father, I thank you again for this evening and for these friends and for an opportunity to search your scriptures. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would allow me to be faithful to the testimony of your word, that you would challenge us where we need to be challenged and encourage us where we need to be encouraged. It's in your holy name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. So there's an interesting thing, interesting thing here happening in the first few verses of Mark uh, 14. We're getting introduced by Mark to three people or three groups and three objects of devotion. So let's kind of walk through these first nine verses together and keep in mind we're looking for three different groups with three different objects of, of devotion, things that they're driven by, that their loyalty is given to. The Passover feast we read in verse 1 is about to happen. This is a huge, huge deal. In fact, thousands of people would be traveling to where Jesus is now to celebrate the Passover feast. It's like a week-long celebration. And they're remembering when God was faithful to the Israelites to rescue them from Egypt, to remove them from the bonds of slavery and from the tyranny of the Pharaoh. And what we see in verse 1 and verse 2 is that there's a group here, the chief priests and the scribes. This is our first group. 
Instead of taking this time to celebrate and to uh, acknowledge the faithfulness of God to the Israelites, instead they spend it scheming, plotting, finding a way to murder Jesus. And they do this uh, craftily. They know that a lot of people are there, and Jesus has become pretty popular. He's been walking around healing people, rescuing people from illnesses, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom that has come in him. And so they're afraid that if they meet him head on, that there might be protests, there might be riots, there might be uproar about their opposition. So they plan to sabotage. Now before we totally condemn the chief priests and the scribes, I want to remind you what they're kind of going through. These men were the elite. They were the cream of the crop. They were held in high esteem. Their names were known, and they were of massive power and influence in their communities. And to them, Jesus comes around, and they see their power. They see their influence rip it away, rip, getting ripped away from them. And instead of acknowledging who Jesus was, who he claimed to be, that God made flesh to come rescue the world, instead they fight and brutally to maintain their power, to maintain their influence. See, because their devotion was to their power. They were devoted to their own influence. So that's the first group. Let's look at verse 3. We move in verses 3 through 9 to a different setting. Jesus has been invited to a dinner. It says at Simon the leper's house. We get some insight from John 12, another testimony of the life of Christ, that uh, Lazarus was there, that his sister Mary is in fact the woman that we read of here in Mark. They're all around the dinner table and celebrating. If you don't remember who Lazarus is, this is the young man who died, whose sisters Mary and Martha mourned the death of and who rebuked Jesus for not showing up to rescue him, to save him from death. Jesus weeps with them, Jesus rebukes them, and then Jesus ultimately puts life back into Lazarus. These are the people they're eating with. So this is a celebration of the Passover, but just as much it may be a celebration of the life of Lazarus, that God has provided new life to him. And as they're sitting there, Mary takes this alabaster flask. As we read, <coughs> excuse me, in verse uh, 5, this expensive, valuable flask, she breaks it apart and pours the perfume over Jesus' head. This is a sign of honor, a sign of worship. And we see in verses 4 and 5, the disciples, again in John 12, we are given more detail, led by Judas, watching and scoffing Mary for her actions. Why was the ointment wasted like that? This ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii. This is the voice of Judas. And in John 12, we're told that this was not because of an empathy or a compassion for the poor, but actually instead because he loved money. He was the thief among the 12. He had his hand in the cookie jar at all times. See, because Judas's devotion was not to the Christ, Judas's devotion was to his own self-protection. It was to money. He was devoted to money. But Jesus, in verse 6, rebukes the charges of Judas. He rebukes the charges of the disciples and says that she has done something beautiful. She has treated him and done something beautiful. But why? Well, she's done what she's could. She's anointed my body for burial. She has chosen to give her devotion to me. Mary's exposed. Her devotion is exposed, and it is to Jesus. Mary's security, her life, the life of her brother, is found in Jesus. There's two things I want us to see about these kind of three people and three different devotions. 
I want us to see two things about the nature of our devotion, about the reality of how it works. The first is that our devotion has a singular focus. You and I's devotion, our object of worship, has only one place to go, only one object. When I first moved to Houston, a little bit of backstory, I went to Wheaton College in Chicago, if anybody's heard of that before. Uh, when I was there, I became an avid Cubs fan. I went to Wrigley Field. I know, we'll just wait. I went to Wrigley Field. I saw the Ivy. I fell in love. Field of Dreams was one of my favorite movies growing up. I felt like I was in the movie when I went. So anyway, fast forward, I moved to Houston seven years ago, and someone from our church offers me tickets to the Astros-Cubs game, and we get the, I think, I haven't been in a long time, the green seats, is that what they're called, where you're sitting like right behind home plate, and you get to like the buff, you spend half the game in the buffet underneath the stadium, and they come up and kind of watch it before you go get nachos again. So <clears throat> I'm getting invited to this game, and I'm thinking, this is awesome. I'm going to grab my Cubs gear. I'm going to wear it. It's going to be great. And then I'm reminded by my friend who's giving me these tickets, you better not wear Cubs gear. Now, see, here's the thing. There was a place of tension in my heart. I wanted to go and enjoy the nachos, but I also wanted to wear my Cubs gear. My loyalty was being tested. And I wore my Cubs. I said, okay, I'll just wear my Cubs hat. So I wore you know, normal clothes, wore my Cubs hat, and I could see the car coming down the road. And then I began to sweat and get kind of nervous, and before the car pulled up to pick me up, I ran inside and took my hat and threw it in the house and came back as if they would never have seen what I was doing. See, because when tensions were highest, when decision moment came, my loyalty, my devotion was revealed. I was more devoted to this nacho than I was the Cubs. I was more devoted to watching the game and this experience than I was to the Cubs, and I will say I think it was better off because the Astros got really good after that. So anyway, true colors are revealed. Matthew 6, 24 says this, No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The scripture is clear. We can only have one object of devotion. We can only have one object of worship. For the chief priests, for the scribe, it was their influence. It was their power. And all that they did was motivated by those things. For Judas, it was money. He was devoted to financial gain. And every decision that he made, every leverage that he pulled off was for that gain. But Mary was devoted to worshiping Jesus. She blessed him for who he was and what he had done. Namely, seeing the resurrection of, his, of her brother. What I want us to know and recognize tonight is that you and I are far more like the chief priests and Judas than we'd probably like to admit. We too, when our power and our influence are questioned or pushed or stripped away, are tempted to fight back with ruthlessness. You see this in every fight. When my power or influence is questioned by someone that I don't think it ought to be questioned by, how do I respond? Maybe much like the chief priests. Whenever uh, we're like Judas and the fact that we're tempted to be devoted to the things around us. We're swept up by career advancement, by social advancement, by security, by power, by money. But we're also like them and that we're ultimately devoted to just one thing. Our hearts can only worship ultimately one thing. So the challenge for us, especially Christian, is to choose today. Whom will you serve? Who will you devote your life to? It can only be one. 
My contention is it ought ought to be Jesus, that we love him and obey him. The second nature of the quality of devotion is this, that it's costly. Devotion, our devotion is costly. Look again at verses 3 through 9. Remember this significance of the costliness of the perfume. This is 300 denarii. That's about one year's worth of wages. This is a lot amount of money. Um, But not only that, it resembled, or uh, I think this word, it was a symbol, there you go, for something much bigger. To break this flask is the only way to get the perfume out. So in other words, once this was broken, once she blessed Jesus in this way, there was no turning back. And this flask, this alabaster flask, was likely the most valuable thing in her life. To break something like that, to pour perfume over the head of Jesus, was also an incredibly vulnerable thing. In a very real sense, when she broke that flask over the, or not over the head of Jesus, but when she broke it and then poured it over Jesus gently, she was pouring herself before him. She gave him all that she was. And the significance of Judas's betrayal is no different. The cost of his devotion was no different. As John 12 mentions, again, Judas had shown his love for money throughout. This action of betrayal for a payday from the chief priests was a long time coming. The entire time he's with the Christ, he steals. He has his money, his hand in the cookie jar. The consequence of consistent compromise and habitual decisions led to his betrayal. In Mark 14, 21, Jesus says, Woe to him who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better if he was never born. When Judas betrays the Christ, in a very real sense, he has given himself over to his devotion for money. Both Mary and Judas handed their lives over to the object of their devotion. And we do the same. You see, because the nature of devotion is not only that it's singular, that it's focused on one thing, but because devotion is costly. And this makes sense. Anytime you devote yourself to something, it costs something. Anytime you devote yourself to a new task, there's a sacrifice. If you want to go to higher education to become more academic, to learn more things, it takes time. It takes money. You have to sacrifice those things. If We just bought a house a couple months ago, and I wanted to learn how to build a beam in a house because we needed one and I wanted to save money. It didn't save much money. Uh, but it cost me time, energy, money to learn those things. I devoted myself to a new thing and it cost me dearly. Committing yourself to anything always comes with a cost. And so here's kind of the gut check time for us Christians. Following Jesus will cost you because devoting yourself to anything costs you. It must. One commentator said this about the book of Proverbs. It's the book of wisdom in the Old Testament. A lot of sayings about how to live life and how to live wisely, how to live foolishly. He says this, the whole book is summed up. The wise disadvantage themselves in order to advantage the community. The foolish disadvantage the community in order to advantage themselves. I'll say it again. The wise, the righteous, disadvantage themselves in order to advantage the community. The foolish, the unrighteous, disadvantage the community in order to advantage themselves. The cost of following Jesus is that we give up our lives for his sake and his mission and his glory in the world that will come with a high price. And this text is specifically talking about money, 
Yes, we should be lavish with our money. Tim Keller says you should be lavish with your money when it comes to giving to Christ and his ministry. But it's not just about money. The meaning of this incident goes, this is Keller, far beyond the realm of finances and money. It's often extremely expensive to obey Christ in terms of social and emotional capital as well as financial. If you simply tell the truth or act with integrity or act with purity or forgive, it may cost you the respect of others. It may cost you pleasure and it may cost you freedom. To follow Christ is costly. We're giving up our lives to him. But remember, any place we place our worship will cost us. The good news about this, and this is kind of the second part of it, or excuse me, the second gut check for this. Dear Christian, if you call yourself that this evening, we must ask ourselves, what has Christ cost me? What have I laid down? What changes have been made? What discomforts have been given? Paul tells us to work out our faith with fear and trembling. That uh, we read in the Gospels that good trees produce good fruit. What fruit is in your life? What fruit is in mine? Where have we disadvantaged ourselves for the sake of advantaging our community? That, I don't know about you all, but that was a hard question to ask myself this week. The good news, as Kyle's already mentioned, there's grace for that. If you find yourself in the, in the room, in the chair right now, saying, oh no, I don't know. Good news, Christ still loves you. Let's keep reading. The question for ourselves the rest of the night then is this. If our devotion will be singular in focus, if it will absolutely cost us something, why should Jesus receive our devotion? Why is he better than anything else? Let's look with me at verses 10 through 11. It says, Then Judas Iscariot, who is one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad, and they promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. There was a promise delivered from the chief priests. They said, we'll give you what your heart desires most, which is money. We'll give you that security that you're after through money. The promise was delivered, and the response to the promise was finished. Our devotion, this is the last and final point. Our devotion is not only singular in focus, it not only costs us something, but our devotion is a response to a promise. And here's the thing, not all promises are created equal. One of uh, my favorite memories, to dote on Kyle over there, is uh, our, I think your favorite, maybe, no, perhaps one of. Uh, one of our favorite bands is a band called Me Without You. They no longer exist, which is super sad. But Kyle and I got to go to one of their last concerts here in Houston, oh gosh, like three years ago. Man, COVID's kind of a vacuum of time. Anyway, we go to the concert. One of their, my favorite songs is a song called Messes of Men. And here's some of the lyrics from that song. It says, the propeller's spinning blades held acquaintance with the waves. Because there's mistakes that I've made that no rowing could outrun. With tarnish on my brass and mildew on my glass. I know that doesn't make any sense. Just ignore that part. I never want so cra- someone so crass as to want some like me. But a few leagues off the shore, I bit a flashing lure. And I assure you, it was not what I expected it to be. I still taste its kiss. That dull hook is in my lips. It's a memory as useless as a rod without a reel. The truth is is that we're all promised salvation. We're all promised rescue from our difficult 
the difficult things in our lives, from the mistakes that we can't outrun. But the question is, whose promise will we trust? The world promises us, promises us rescue and financial security and social security, not social security like you put in, but like friendship security and popularity and politics. But the difference in the promises is that when the world asks for our devotion, it does not offer its devotion in return. It's like a dull hook that's in our lips that reminds us of a memory of promise that's as useless as a rod without a reel. But the good news is that the promise of God, when he asks for our devotion, he asks as one who has already devoted himself to us. The promise of the world is that the shifting sands of money, popularity, economic, social, and political security will actually give us life. But the promise of Christ is found in verse 8, that he was being prepared for a burial. See, Christ knew what was about to come that you'll get to in a few weeks. He was just a few days away from offering himself up on the cross to take the full wrath of God, our punishment, and to conquer death with his resurrection. He knew what was coming. And he asked for our devotion, having already given himself to us, having already devoted himself to us. So I ask you, and ask yourself, whose promise is better? Whose promise is better? What does this mean practically? We're going to end with this. If you're wondering how this, what this devotion looks like on a Saturday night or a Tuesday morning, how we might actually embody this. John 14, 15 tells us this. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. The way that we show our devotion to Jesus, much like Mary did, is we pour ourselves out to him. We love him and we love his people. My prayer, dear Christian, is that when we look at the cross and we see the worthiness of Christ for our devotion, that we respond accordingly. Like the hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, it says, Were the whole realm of nature mine that were a present far too small? Leave, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. I hope that we would see that what we would know is that when we would, and that we, excuse me, that what we would feel is the tremendous love of God. And in doing so, we would offer our love and obedience to him. Let's pray. Christ, thank you for this evening. Thank you again for my friends. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would give us strength to love you. You give us strength to be devoted to you and to you only. That when the whispers and the temptations of this world come, that we would see them for what they are as false promises. Holy Spirit, give us eyes to see what is true. Let us experience your love and mercy for us. And it's your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.